Warning our own way is woven in the fabric of fallen nature. Since the fall, it's been our default orientation. We can see this even from our earliest days, whenever our way is crossed. We insist, even from the cradle, and then on the playground, and in school. And as we grow up, then as adults, it pops up in the workplace and our relationships. Our selfishness is a master of disguise, wearing a thousand masks to cover up its motives. Our selfishness is a wordsmith, bending, shaping, sometimes twisting rationales for why our preferences are reasonable and right and even righteous. Odds are, you've come across a narcissistic tool and with the advent of social media, you may even have some narcissistic tendencies yourself. So in the age of viral TikTok dopamine and bathroom selfies on Instagram, are we more narcissistic now than generations before us? Insisting on our own way is at the heart of most of our conflicts and at the bottom of almost all of the ways humans abuse others. What if this has crept in unnoticed to our garden of faith? What if we are the last to know about it? But what if there's a surefire way to detect and desist from this character flaw? In this episode of Keeper 100, we will bring the finale of our conversation with Selfie Stick Saints and interview director of Youth for the Nations, Michael Stanley. Welcome to Keep It 100 Podcast with Sean and Krista Smith. Join us in this space where we take on real issues with real insight and a real inspiration. This podcast is for those not looking for temporary relief to change circumstance, but revelation to forever change lives. Hey, what's going on, fam? Welcome to a new episode of Keep It 100. Come on, everybody. We're so excited for another episode with you because we love the Keep It 100 tribe. And get ready because it's such a good conversation today. I love what we're talking about. Oh, my God. Me too. Hey, we're going to start off, gang, and just give you some ministry updates. Yeah. We got a chance to go out to Hotlanta. Come on at the ATL. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. And it was hot, y'all. <laughs> and we were out there with Brian Guerin, and we love He's that guy amazing. and his ministry. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I love him and his ministry. He's such a humble heart, such a depth in the presence of God. And what a great group he's raised up out there. I just love that. And then from there, I kind of did a little solo trip. I did a Shamar 22 a conference and it was awesome. I got a chance to be with Charlie Howell III and great people were out there as a part of that. Ryan Lestrange, so many others. I got a chance to teach on prophetic evangelism, but I got a chance and I'm, I'm so passionate on equipping people in prophetic evangelism. But I got a chance to really demonstrate and we got so many praise reports. I literally almost sold out of all my prophetic evangelism books. It was powerful. And then I had to jump in a car, y'all, and drive three hours from Raleigh, North Carolina to Concord, North Carolina. And I was at the Ignite Campus Ministry and Church Planning Movement. Got a chance to be there with Nico Peel and Carol Ann. And it was powerful. Got a chance to minister there and go tag team with my buddy, great friend as well, Eric Johnson, who he's gone out there and they planted a church out in Greensville. So it was mighty. But meanwhile, boo. Oh, I had the privilege to go into LifeBridge Christian Center in Longview, Texas. And I tell you what, I fell in love with that church. Like pastors Brian and Megan McDaniel are killing it. There's just such a special move of God. I did a women's conference on Friday and Saturday, brought our assistant ministry administrator Natalia, who's just amazing. And so her and I went down there together and we just saw God really encounter the people in a really beautiful way. Because then after that, you went to another location. That's right. I went to Trinity Church in Cedar Hill in the Dallas area with Jim and Becky Hennessy. It's love powerful. Them. That church church is in revival. And so I preached two Sunday morning services and it was just so cool as miracles broke out, healing, prophetic ministry, people got saved, people hit the altar. And then it was also good to have Mama Cindy and Mike Jacobs in the audience. Aww, and so we grabbed lunch. And, and uh, then we flew out uh, that following week for Greater Works, which is Randy Clark's ministry for the Greater Things Conference. And so just such an honor to partner with them. And Sean had a couple sessions. I had a couple sessions and we just saw God move. I got to be with youth, the Gen Zers 
which I am loving right now. And lastly, before we jump into this week's conversation, I want to just highlight again, we have a prophetic masterclass that's happening September 16th and 17th in person here in the Bay Area of California. I'm so excited as we have our dear friend, Julian Adams, who is such a prophetic voice. He's truly a prophet, but Julian's going to come and he's going to teach specifically on words of knowledge. Sean's going to be talking about prophetic evangelism. I'm going to be talking about the gift of prophecy. And we're adding all those sessions together. We're calling it the prophetic masterclass. We're going to go in deep. It's going to be a time of impartation, a time of teaching. Friends, we're going in deep and we're believing we're all going to walk away changed. So right now you can go to www.seanandkristasmith.com and you could sign up and lock in a place. Come on. I love that. All right. We're diving in to the topic this week and we have titled it Selfie Stick Saints Part Two and we're calling it Turning the Lens Around. And we're going to be having an interview with Micah Steger, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But I want to dive into some interesting content and interesting surveys and research that we've discovered. Okay, so you guys ready? A 2019 survey by a smartphone company found that 85% of people are taking more selfie pictures of themselves than ever before. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? In recent years, social media has largely evolved from keeping in touch with others to actually flaunting for attention. So the focus and the intention has shifted dramatically. And they actually say this emerging generation is fame obsessed. And it's actually, this is scary, three times as many middle school girls now want to grow up to be a personal assistant to a famous person rather than be a senator. Okay. When I grew up, we were all about being a senator. Um, And this is what's interesting. According to the same survey, four times as many of these girls would pick an assistant job over being a CEO of a major corporation. I'm like, excuse me, I would much rather be the boss than the assistant for the record, right? right? Can you imagine you're being assistant to a famous celebrity as demanding and as crazy as that would be? Right. That's like devil wears Prada right there. I mean, (laughs) you're being driven around by some guy or girl that has diva stuff. No, no, no. Young lady, be the CEO. That's my word to you. (laughs) That's right. Right along those lines, boo, Elias Abujaude, he's a Stanford University psychiatry professor and author of Virtually You, The Dangerous Powers of the E-Personality. Right along with this subject that we're talking about, he said, quote, what used to be thought of as narcissistic, vain, and self-centered behavior is now the guiding norm of society. And he actually tweeted this, but he also goes on to say, quote, there is a psychological need now to feel relevant and desired by attracting friends, followers, and likes. The constant need fed by social media to call attention to oneself, even if it means ignoring others' needs, is consistent with a narcissistic personality trait being reinforced by the online life, end of quote from this guy. And really the bottom line is everything about this medium reinforces narcissistic instincts. And he goes on to say, what is sad and ironic is that many of the supposedly healthy social media discussions of narcissism are themselves full of narcissistic expressions. In a way, we can't help, according to him, but act narcissistic online. And so just to underscore what this professor says, narcissism as a topic, you guys, is breaking out on TikTok. Right now, the hashtag NarcTalk, which is a combination of narcissism and TikTok, has drawn 1.9 billion views to date. Again, the hashtag NarcTalk has drawn 1.9 billion views to date, and the hashtag Narcissism has drawn 1.6 billion views to date. That's crazy. Unfortunately, narcissism is on the rise. Social media might even be a contributing factor. Recent research found people who posted large number of selfies on social media developed, listen to this boo, a 25% rise in narcissistic traits over a four-month period. You know, researchers agree that there are actually three dimensions of narcissism, which actually I think this is super interesting. Yeah. Each 
dimension is characterized by a heightened sense of self-importance, but they differ from each other in really important ways. So I'm going to kind of break this down. So if you were to ask people to define narcissism, they'd probably emphasize the first dimension of narcissism, which is grandiosity, uh, which people in higher grandiosity put themselves out there. They're bold, extroverted, assertive, yep. and overconfident. We all know those people. Yep. They believe they're the best and they often try to seek power over others. But we have to understand there's another dimension of narcissism. And the second dimension of narcissism is vulnerability. And vulnerability is characterized by being shy and inhibited and anxious. And people higher in vulnerability desire success and admiration similar to those in grandiosity, but have difficulties in achieving these goals. And although it's not always obvious, some people with narcissistic tendencies score quite high in vulnerability. You know, I want to jump in on that because I really believe that maybe the second dimension of narcissism vulnerability might be the one that is the most underrated, but yet maybe has the highest at this point usage. Because I think of the vulnerability and we're talking about obviously selfie stick saints is seen in the person that rehearses their pain in front of an audience online. You're seeing more and more people, I call it kind of scratching owies online, that we have to go through all the bad stuff that happened. We're trying to process, we're doing it in front of people. But part of it, part of it is we want the attention. We want people to come and do this. And in fact, it really just reinforces a narcissistic kind of selfish dimension. So I'm glad you mentioned that second dimension because I think it's underrated vulnerability. I agree. I agree. And the third dimension of narcissism is entitlement. You know, we're talking about entitlement because it actually involves believing that you deserve more than you do. Wow. Come on, somebody. Yep. People higher in entitlement believe they should be treated special and that they deserve the best. And this is honestly, to me, the root system that the Christian celebrity culture has been built upon that we find in today's church. Facts. It's like what is the red rope in nightclubs has become the green room at charismatic conferences. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Is that you get that celebrity culture that, man, I'm going to tell you all the great ways Dang. that God's using me and, and we're going to separate ourselves from the other people. And again, yeah. not all green rooms are like that, No, but, but we've been in green. some green rooms that have been like Facts. that. That's true. And I would say we've equally been in green rooms just for the listener today to have encouragement in your heart with the most humble, true. love Jesus, love their people, hundred yeah. percent, not about them. Yeah. But there is a hundred percent what Sean's saying is facts, facts. Right. You know, I think this is is rooted and we need to see that it's rooted in scripture because some people in the Bible had their selfie stick saint hat going on and they had this sense of entitlement and they were called Pharisees. And many of the Pharisees in Jesus' day had an idea that they were entitled to God's blessing by virtue of the very fact that they were Jews, a mentality that John the Baptist kind of rebuked. John the Baptist, if you will, he had his podcast going out in the desert. But in Matthew 3, 9, he says, do not think to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. He says, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So they were just thinking by the very fact that we have Abraham as our father, we are entitled. We have this special end with God. We have this. And John the Baptist blasted that and just said, hey, you need to get off that narcissistic stool that you're on. The Pharisees also believe they deserve public places of honor at dinners and in synagogues. You can see this in Matthew uh, 23 and verse 6. They craved attention and, and titles of honor such as rabbi 
by Matthew 23, 7. They love to be praised by men for their good deeds and strict adherence to the law. Matthew 23, 5. And I want to share that scripture. It says, Jesus said, but all their works they do, they do to be seen by men. And they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. So phylacteries, gang, what are those? They were small leather boxes that they would put on their arm that contain all the laws they kept. So imagine these jokers are walking around with a big old box on their arm <laughs> trying to impress everybody. And if you will, that box was like their social media game of just showing you how, you know, they're titled, they're, they've, they've, they've mastered this, they're someone to be envied, and they're looking to be praised by men. But at the end of the day, understand self-sacrifice and self-denial were not part of the Pharisees' nature. Even when they fasted, these dudes made sure others knew it so they could be praised for their act of reverence, Matthew 6, 19. So entitlement culture, boo, is not new. Isn't that the truth? So well said, you know, because we're seeing the same entitlement culture is really seen in one selfie game on social media. And the truth is posting seductive selfies. Let's talk about it. Let's go there. It's really just an outward symptom of actually a much deeper issue. You know, it's a sign that a guy or girl, whoever's posting it is really longing for something more. It's a sign that someone who's trying to fill up their affirmation tank through the praises and compliments of friends and even strangers, actually, you know, a person who craves attention from the opposite sex and hopes they'll notice one of their pictures. We have to understand that seductive selfies are nothing more than an image that screams, look at me, you know, they're an opportunity to point the spotlight on yourself for a brief moment and hope that someone somewhere will notice. But as followers of Christ, we got to understand that God calls us to a much higher standard than to play the seductive selfie game. I totally agree with that because why? The whole purpose of our lives is to point people to Christ, not ourselves. Right. Posting seductive pictures of yourself is not promoting purity, holiness within the body of Christ. It's not pointing to Jesus because really you have to give, I have to give Jesus what he paid for. Selfishness has receipts, y'all. It's another way of saying it has a price tag. And there's a danger of relying on external validation. See, when we rely on external validation, so I'm in the gym, right? I'm flexing like I've been lifting and I want to put on my skinny little muscle shirt as a guy, or maybe as a girl, I'm putting on that like scantily clad outfit. I'm hoping that I can get some external validation. And so I'm basing my needs, my wants, and my validations in an imperfect world from imperfect and broken people. And inevitably, I'm going to get disappointed over the long haul of trying to grasp my identity over getting some likes and all these attempts to feel validated, confirm myself are going to be disappointingly invalid. And that is why you have so many unsatisfied people because we we have become slaves to a temporal world, getting a temporary high when someone or something makes us feel good. And we just want to tell you guys, there's a better way. And that's literally lifting up Jesus and making sure your identity is found in him. You know, baby, you said a really key phrase that I really want to just take a moment to kind of expand on. You talked about a temporary high. And I want to kind of like break that down. Like what is a temporary high? Because we've seen studies for years telling us that social media can be bad for our mental health. You know, let's be honest with ourselves. We really didn't need research to tell us that. We've seen that just looking around society, looking around maybe in our own lives or in the lives of those around us. And in an interview from Facebook whistleblower, Francis Hagen, and thousands of leaked documents show that Facebook knew the harm it can cause and particularly to young people. But for mental health and technology experts, it's not that it's just Facebook and other social media companies, uh, but it's the fact that they know it's not just a con. It's like they know they're causing harm. So my question is, where's the accountability on how this is affecting our society and equally important, how where's the accountability for what this is doing to a generation? Because it's one thing to know it. It's one thing to expose it. It's one thing to be a whistleblower. But friends, what's the solution? Like, how do we actually undo this? Because what 
the road in which we're on is actually detrimental. And we find this again reconfirmed in an interview with Anna Limbic, who's actually the MD psychiatry professor and chief of the addiction medicine at Stanford. I mean, these are not like, you know, entry level people. These are experts in their right. field. Another expert is Tristan Harris, who's the co-founder and president of the Center for Humane Technology, which again is going after these issues. The two of them noted how social media companies use mechanisms in our brain to actually hook us onto social media, making us dependent on the platforms that are enriched with the more we use them. And so both appeared, and we all know this if you watched it, it's called The Social Dilemma. It's a documentary that was released in 2020. Y'all need to watch it. It is. It's powerful. And that documentary detailed the way social media platforms are exploiting human vulnerability. Remember, vulnerability is a, a version of narcissism and it's, you know, spreading information and different things that it's doing. But the question that I really want to break down, because remember talking about temporary high, I want to ask the question, but why does it have such a huge impact on our mental health? And it's because here's the answer, because social media creates a dopamine deficit in our brains. Social media is basically a way to drugify human connection. Now, let me break that down. Uh, One of the ways our brains gets us to make those connections is to release dopamine. That means you and I are doing something that makes us feel good. We're in a reward system in our brain. So dopamine is naturally occurring feel good chemical that triggers our inner reward system. You know, and here's just being honest, it's released when we like eat delicious food or people have sex or people are addicted to drugs. That is why they continue to become addicted to those things at times is because it has such high levels of dopamine in our brain. But here's the problem. Social media mimics human connection, prompting dopamine release when we get likes and comments. So Limbic, this woman who's giving this interview says the bottomless bowl of social media where we see flashing lights, rankings, beautiful images of other people with all the minimal effort makes the brain release more dopamine than it would with a typical real life interaction. So it's a fake dopamine response, but our brain doesn't know it's fake. So that she says is why it has potential to be like a drug. So bottom line takeaway from this is it feeds self-lesh in the most carnal of nature. Wow. And you know what the answer to that, and that's just so powerful. The fact that they hit it, that kind of makes me a little mad for a generation as well as for myself. And I love this because Jesus calls us to live a whole different lifestyle. And the bottom line is you have to recognize you are Christ representative, not only in the marketplace, but you're Christ representative online. Social media, we'll all admit, has changed the world. It's the very nature of our communication today. We're able to broadcast literally our every thought and opinion on an unprecedented scale. But followers of Christ, Christians, you must not forget that everywhere you go, you represent our Savior. So before you post, tweet, share, remember, you're an ambassador for Christ. And in the same way, the Bible says in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So what you do and say on social media actually matters. While many Christians carry themselves with kindness and grace at church, so once they tap that social media app... Come on, everybody. He said app. That's right. A-P-P, <laughs> app. They transform into some sort of sex kitten or snarling beast. <laughs> All right, guys. As we continue this conversation, we are bringing Micah Steger into the conversation. Get ready, y'all. The man is deep. He brings truth and revelation. Him and his wife, Yvette, are the directors of YFN, Youth for the Nations, just powerhouse couple. And I am so excited for you to hear this powerful conversation. Hey, Keep 100 Tribe, you guys are in for a special treat. I have Micah Steger with us. He teaches a class at CFNI uh, there in Dallas, Texas on cultural trends and issues. But we've invited him on the podcast 
because he's just an all-around awesome dude. Uh, he's dope. Micah, what's going on, my brother? Yo, it is so good to be on here with you. Thank you to you and Krista. We love you guys so much. Hey, you and Yvette, you guys and the kids, you guys are amazing. We had such a fun time with you guys. We have for the past several, I don't know how many years now running that we've gone down and done your camp meetings. And an earlier podcast, we were talking about the most profound youth camp meetings we've ever been in in the United States of America. It's straight Brazilian. How, how does this happen? <laughs> how do you see this kind of stuff? It's because we have Brazilians interning for us. That's why. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. We, um, yeah, it, the deep wells of, I mean, Christ for the Nations are still here. They're active. And I think that's one of the, the secret sauces that we're not trying to build a new name for ourselves or the ministry, but we're just tapping into the, the DNA of the Lindsay family and the people that helped really birth this place. And so YFN is not young. It's, I mean, yeah, it's 32 years old. Um, and so there's lots of history, even with it being one of the largest and most consistent youth movements in America. And so we've just had the opportunity to be a part of it, honestly. Um, the service, I think it's been about four years since y'all have been coming. Um, I know as long as we've been doing it, y'all, we've had y'all every year. But just being able to be and have a hand in what God has been doing in the youth through YFN has been one of the most rewarding and greatest honors that I've ever had the privilege of being a part of. And so every night y'all 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 show up, man. You you show up. It definitely y'all bring it. Y'all lean into it. We've seen some of the most profound, deep services that we've ever experienced and been a part of in our time here when you and Krista show up. So yeah, it's a party every time. It's a Holy Ghost party. Micah, seriously, you have done such a great job. And when I recognize that level of anointing, I know there was a price paid behind the scenes, man. And so I just commend you for that. So man, let me ask you this first question, Micah. What is your origin story? We love to ask the different ones that get on kind of a la MCU uh, movies <laughs> is what is their origin story? And specifically, I feel like you have such a, a cutting edge fire to bring about, I, I feel like revival, but at the same time, kind of a reformation amongst a generation. What, what is it that God did in your life that ignited you for the purpose and the assignment that you guys walk in right now? Yeah, that's a deep question because um, there's many layers to that. I feel like it's not a, it's it's definitely one of the better Marvel origin stories and less of the DC trying to fit all of them into one <laughs> Justice League movie. And so I'll give you the, I'll give, I'll give you the, the Marvel origin story. Um, we, I was born and raised at Charlotte, North Carolina, and that's where a Christian home, but never made my, the faith my own. I just kind of obeyed and listened. I had good, good behavior. Um, and as man, I really got to the point where I was about 15 years old and my life was a mess. I was in and out of school suspension. I was dealing and doing pills, hustling, um, ready to get, I was literally about to get jumped into a gang. Um, and then the week that I was supposed to do that, unbeknownst to my mom, she last ditch effort sent me to summer camp at 15 years old. Um, and that week it was very, very, very Southern Baptist. Um, but we had Chris Tomlin leading worship and we had Louis Giglio bringing the word, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And that's, I think I went through every service making it hard for my youth pastor and my leader, everybody that was with me. I was the kid that did not want to be there and I made it known. I was sneaking out. I was listening to music. I was getting girls numbers. I was stealing stuff. Um, uh, so I was just really, I made that trip very difficult for the youth pastor. But that last night, Louis Giglio was preaching his indescribable message. Um, I think it was that year it came out. And everything that I heard about Jesus my entire life became real in a moment. I just was sitting there and the revelation of him being my savior, God being my creator, me being born with a purpose, like just every, I remember sitting there and it was like the epiphany of he is Lord. And there wasn't an altar call. There wasn't anything. I just knew like he 
gave his life for me. And so I surrendered my life to him and I just made that decision. I remember leaving that service, not knowing what to do, almost like that zeal of Peter with <laughs> defending Jesus by cutting off people's ears. Like I just felt that zeal of like, I have to change my life. And so I start calling people that are in my contact list on my cell phone, calling girls that I had tried to hook up with, calling homies that I used to roll with. I just, hey, I just gave my life to Jesus. Hey, I just gave my life to Jesus. I just called them all. Like I burnt every bridge before I'd even gotten home. I had called all of them and let them know. People at that camp that I had stolen like a wallet from, I found them in the crowd and I slid it back in their pocket. Like that conviction of the Holy Spirit just filled me. And I'm like, it wasn't a condemning. It was just, okay, I have to change who I am. So that was like salvation, um, being able to give, surrender my life to Jesus. But then two years later at a, another youth camp, I remember, again, that youth group that I was in was um, not spirit-filled. There wasn't a lot of uh, doctrine there, but it was one of those things to where I go to this next summer camp at 17 years old. And I remember being in a worship service and not feeling connected to God. I felt like there was a barrier between us. And in that particular church, I had been taught if there was ever a hindrance between me and God, it was because there was secret sin. So I go outside and I'm like, God, I'm so sorry for whatever it is that's bothering you. You know, I'm like, I'm not, I, I repent of it all, all the secret sin. And I just basically I say the prayer, I'm not leaving this spot until I cry. And so I sat there for well over an hour. And then as a 17 year old Baptist kid, I had my first vision um, where I'm just all by myself. I'm not even in the auditorium, have a vision. And the angel, I'm in a room with an angel and it's a dimly lit room. And he says, follow me, come up here. And I follow him up a flight of stairs and he opens up a door and we walk out and it's the balcony of an auditorium. And I see an entire auditorium arena really of young people like my generation pursuing the heart of God. I see them crying out to him, worshiping him. There's desperation. You could just feel the hunger in the room. And I just began to weep because I was like, God, thank you for allowing me to see what my generation's capable of. And then the angel says, no, you missed it. And I was, missed what? I'm seeing it. And he points at the stage and then I see myself leading the room in that pursuit. And so the you know vision was over at that moment, but then I knew at 17 years old, this is what I'm called to do with my life. And so that was like, I, that's when I received the call into ministry was in that moment. I remember telling my youth pastor during testimony time at the end of camp, can I share this with the youth group? And they're like, no, uh, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Like it was such a profound vision at the time and I had very little language for it and no basis for it at that time. But that was, uh, yeah, that was how I got called in the ministry. And like, two years later, it's like every two years, two years later at 19, I had another vision at a, an altar call where I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's a whole nother story, but I got, you know, I received that. I had no, no, no context for it. I had no doctrine for it. I remember like not fully being down with that before the service ended and then it happening to me and me going to someone who was spirit filled. I'm like, hey, I think I need to get baptized. They're like, what do you mean? I was like, well, I started praying in that tongues thing that you do. And they're like, Micah, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm like, oh, like I literally, I didn't know, but it was a, just one of those marking moments. And then um, I came to Christ for the nations at 20 years old. And here I swear I had many, many, many more encounters with God where it just shaped me and formed me um, into who I am today. But it all goes back to those moments. Man, Micah, that vision, that encounter where you go up the stairs with an angel, I mean, that marked you. That makes total sense now as a, no, as a, as a friend of yours and just see the way you walk out your Christianity and your, your, your clarity 
your due north, your convictions. And at the same time, man, you're getting ready to jump in a gang, man. I could just see your your street cred, your, your heart, your connection. And that kind of leads me to this next question. From your observation, Micah, what are some of the cultural trends and challenges that make this generation so unique? Yeah, I kind of put together eight distinctions just to kind of categorize between millennial and um, Gen Z, just to kind of break that up. Because I'm millennial, I, you know, being able to, I've led with them, but I've also now led with Gen Z. So here's eight different contrasts um, Love between Gen Z and millennials. So Gen Z, they're very realistic, whereas millennials were very optimistic. Um, opti- op- millennials were optimists because of their encouraging baby boomer parents, and they grew up in a time of prosperity and opportunity. And Gen Z is much more realistic thanks to their skeptical but straight shooting Gen, Gen X parents um, growing up during a recession. And so you see this wildly accurate whenever you're looking at the way that they lead, the way they do business, there's a huge difference there. The second distinction would be Gen Z is very independent, whereas millennial was very collaborative. If you look at the workspaces created by millennials, they were all the desks were connected together, lofts, couches, everybody. It was very collaborative, whereas Gen Z is like, I don't need any of that. Give me a laptop. I make it happen. Like they just, it's their own thing. They're very, very independent. They're very much self-sufficient, which is different than millennial. Uh, The third one is their Gen Z is digital natives, whereas millennial were digital pioneers. Mm. So a lot of the tech that Gen Z uses was created by predominantly millennial, whereas millennials probably got their first cell phones in high school, um, maybe college. I know, I think I got my first one at 14 or 15. It was not Mm -hmm. a smartphone. It was a cell phone, but (laughs) being able to learn how to use teaching my parents buying a computer, me being on the, you know, I was born in 92. So um, the end of the spectrum, but like helping them learn how to use a computer while we all learned it together, but being able to pick it up. Whereas Gen Z, the average Gen Zer gets their first smartphone at 11 years old. Oh my. So that's having just that native where they've grown up with Google. Um, and you know, that's a whole nother thing. I feel like you see the reason there's a much bigger disconnect between parents, Gen Z and their parents, millennials and their parents is because the questions I would ask my parents in person, Gen Z is Googling. Mm. So it's the stuff that I would be like, hey dad, how do you do this? It's like they don't have to ask their parents anymore. They can just Google it or even have a TikTok that'll do the tutorial on how to do whatever question is it they're asking. So digital natives versus digital pioneers is a big one. Number four, um, the Gen Z is very, very private. You look at security is a huge issue. Their phone has to have some sort of data locking, all of this stuff, whereas millennials were very public. They loved to make sure everyone knew what they were doing. Um, It was always the top of their mind, whereas Gen Z is much more calculated and selective with what information they share online. Um, Number five, Gen Z is very much about face to face, uh, which is interesting. Like if you look at tech, you assume they want to have that that, that privacy. They want to make sure. Every, but honestly, I've had young teenagers at camp who will walk up to me to talk with me with uh, a FaceTime going on with their friends. And like literally they'll have like a FaceTime happening, which is like they just have it going on or there'll be a group of them all in one. Like face to face, even if it is digital, is very, very important to them. Whereas millennial, it was very much like digital only. You can IM me, uh, direct message me, all these things. Like it was just, that's like unique distinction between the two. And I'll get through these last three. Number six, um, Gen Z is all about on-demand learning, whereas millennial was very much formally education. Formal education was a big mm-hmm. deal, like getting a degree. And Gen Z is like, I can YouTube it. I don't have to have a diploma that tells me what to do with my career or my life. Um, <laughs> number seven, Gen Z is uh, more about role hopping. They'll bounce around to different jobs based on their interest or situation that they could find themselves in, where the, the clear distinction would be Gen Z 
is about role hopping. Millennials about job hopping. So mm. millennials will find places with good opportunity. Um, Gen Z will find something that they're passionate about and they're good at, but and they'll stay focused on that. But they'll be able to. They'd rather stay in the same company that they're loyal to and play different roles than do the same role at different places. If that makes oh, sense. Totally um, makes sense. So they'd rather stay with inside the same organization and then get different learning opportunities within that organization, even if it means not getting paid as much, which is very, very indicative of Gen Z is that they're much more purpose-based. Give me something to die for or give me a loyalty to bind myself to. And they'll give themselves to it. doesn't matter if they're wow. getting paid less. Whereas millennial was all about opportunity, opportunity, opportunity. Where am I going to get paid more to get the, the American dream? And then number eight, this is huge. Gen Z is very much about being a global citizen, whereas millennial were about being global spectators. Ah. Global citizen being that because of social media, we're no longer finding out about world events on the news at night or the paper the next day, but it's happening in real time on social media. It's trending. It's showing up on the Explore page. So they feel connected to events around the world. Look at even with Ukraine and what has happening there. Like right. they, are, they were connected. They were with that. Um, whereas that connection of knowing what was happening wasn't through a news reporter, but people that they were connected with on TikTok or social media posting from their bedrooms outside of their window what was happening. So they feel much more connected as a citizen to the world, not just their country. Whereas millennial was, we were aware, but we didn't feel that sense of ownership, like tribe, like this is my people. Um, so I think those are, you know, as we've worked with these, these two generations very, very directly, a few things that we've noticed throughout the past seven years, um, Gen Z and millennials. Bro, that is so profound, so accurate. So I want to ask you, in this generation, your observation, what in what ways have self-focus, self-absorption, self-love, I would say self-love gone wrong? In what ways has that impacted a generation right now, the way they view themselves, the way they view their world, or how they interact with each other? Again, in what ways yeah. would you say that self-focus, self-absorption, and, and what I'd call self-love gone wrong? Because the Bible is clear. Love your neighbor as yourself. God's not against self-love, but he's, he is against self-idolization. And sometimes, obviously, that thing bleeds over. So how would you respond to that, bro? That's so good. I look at social media, and as a society, as a human society, we have to recognize it's still very adolescent. You know, social media has not been around for more than two decades. So if we were to look at it, it's still social media, a world with social media. We're still in high school. We're mm -hmm. still, you know, it's very, very adolescent. I don't know what year, I don't remember off the top of my head when Facebook was founded, but that idea of a society being interconnected through the digital platform, we're still trying to figure out our way. And as many, I think for as many cons as there are, there are definitely pros. Um, and there are things that it has done for us to benefit. I would say it's a lot like fire. It's like when fire was first discovered, I'm sure it burned down a lot of villages and it probably you know, a lot of people were left with third degree burns but once we were able to harness it we can maximize its potential it still will cause extreme damage but it done right it can provide warmth it can provide light it can provide power so all those things i think social media has lots of potential um and we're, as we're trying to identify how does it mess with the the the, the psyche the, the person the individual self-love self-interest um you know when i look at just to kind of create a contrast again and you could even attest to this like for xers and and millennials, when we were growing up, we were trying to figure out who we were. The, there were very few places we looked for that. You know, it was, okay, we looked to our, our parents, our family. We looked to our neighbors, you know, our circle, our, our, our people that we did life with. We looked to our peers. And then we looked to like MTV, right? Like yes. who was a trending artist or actor or actress, someone that, so it was like about four or five areas, maybe school, you could find, you could definitely count it on two hands, how many places you looked at to figure out who you were. That self 
self-expression. Um, you know, for me growing up, it was, I didn't really have, I did not personally have MySpace until I was like 15 and that was the first one. But if I wanted to figure out who I was, I was looking at my family. But today, as this generation is trying to figure out themselves, it, you know, it's like if we were to hold up how many mirrors they're looking in that are trying to tell them who they are. It's not just family and friends, neighbors, school. It's this, it's every single artist that they follow. It's every single mm. influencer that they follow. It's every single designer that they follow. So out of the hundreds, if not thousands of people they follow, they're looking at them and every single one of them is saying, this is who you have to be. This is wow. what you have to accept. This is what you have to embrace. And they'll even make very, very strong blanket statements. If you don't agree with this, unfollow me. Making the individual who's following them trying to figure out who they are question, well, I don't want to be that person that they would not associate themselves with. So let me change this part of who I am. Wow. Let me change this part of who I am. And so we have a, in, in a culture that says in order to be accepted, you have to change where the kingdom was built on this idea. The gospel was built on this idea because I've accepted you. Now you can change. It's good. It's come. It's the paradigm shift. It's because the kingdom, the kingdom says, you know, Matthew chapter three, before Jesus ever performed a miracle, he came up out of the water of Jordan after being baptized and God descended like a dove and his voice opened up for heaven and said, behold, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The idea of knowing who you are is incredibly important. And if we're not listening to the right voices, then we don't know who we are. Therefore, we don't know what we're supposed to do. And I think that's when it comes to self-love. If you know who you are and you know what you're called to do, you can love yourself appropriately. As I look at this, I look at, man, they're holding up all these different mirrors and saying, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? And if they're listening to the wrong voices, they'll never be able to love themselves because they don't know who themselves is. They don't know who they are. Um, and I put it to you like this. I, I love, you know, I'm, I'm a preacher. I, we both are. And so in Second um, Samuel chapter 23, David's on his deathbed. He's giving shout outs to all of his mighty men going through, giving everyone, you know, just shout out this person, shout out this person to make sure I honor this person. And he gets to Beniah and it says, and he's like, and then there was Beniah, son of Jehoiada. And he goes on to give three accounts of what Beniah accomplished. But I love, I love in the Old Testament, especially no one was ever referenced as an individual. They were always referenced in context of their lineage, where they mm. came from, to so give weird. us a better understanding of who they were. So it said this, and then there was Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. Benaiah means built by God, but Jehoiada means Yahweh knows. And so the reason Benaiah was able to accomplish what he did, chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day and killed it, killed two Goliaths of Moab, killed an Egyptian with his own spear. The reason he was able to do those things is because he had to look at where he came from. Yahweh knows, therefore, Benaiah was built by God. So mm. what we have to recognize is that before we were ever built for something, we were known by someone. So good. And that's Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. So before mm. we were ever built for something, we were known. And unless this generation is taught on the core principles of finding out who you are, your identity being found in Christ, being crucified with Christ, unless they, unless they're led to that place of knowing that they are accepted, they're chosen, they are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, all these things, then there's no way for them to appropriately love themselves or love the world because they don't know who they are and then they won't know what they're called to do. Bro, that is, that's profound. That's a book right there. You know, let me ask you kind of along these lines or just pick your brain too. I kind of feel like so often there's this contrast between endorsement and affirmation. You know, in Jesus, before he did any ministry, yeah. he comes up out of the river, Jordan being water baptized and the father says, this is my son who I'm well pleased. There was there was a father endorsement. Uh, Acts 2.22, one of my favorite scriptures says uh, how God endorsed Jesus of Nazareth, a man which you yourself know, and it goes on to talk about some of the things that he did in their midst. 
but it says a man endorsed by God. I kind of feel like in, in, in this generation, and for that matter, the generations, it's just a human thing more than an age thing, that when we lack the endorsement of God, it's in the default that we seek for the affirmation of men. And so mm-hmm. whether it's a selfie, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to blast selfie. I've done selfies. I think we all have. But I think the preponderance of the dude in the gym, you know, he's just flexing and, and always just kind of putting his out there, dropping his shirt a little bit lower, flexing. And at the same time, we know this dude is a follower of Christ. He loves the Lord, everything like that. And oh, the, the girl that dresses maybe provocatively and puts herself out there and then kind of both groups, that guy and that girl sneak back to see how many likes did I get? Did, who commented? Did I get a response from so-and-so? Did someone else like it? Oh, bummer. I only got, you know, 50 likes on this. I only got, you know, under a thousand TikTok or whatever. I kind of feel like so many suffer because they're, they're starved for affirmation and that appetite could have been answered by endorsement, meant by endorsement. And when you mentioned Jehoiada, right, the, the father of Benaiah, it, it's that thing when you're, when you're already known by God, there is a built-in endorsement. When you have a supernatural, infinitely wise being, you know, omniscient, that knows everything about you, but still chooses to love mm. you, that's that's like endorsement like we can never, never find any place else. Do you, you kind of notice that, you know, just in terms of, you know, somebody's Instagram game, you know, in terms of what they're putting out there? Do you see that there's a connection between this kind of endorsement, affirmation, or what would you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. If you don't know who you are, you don't know how much you're worth. And mm. if you don't have that understanding, then you'll always be up for sale to the highest bidder or the highest compliment. Um, you know, sell yourself to all of those things that would give you that affirmation that you feel like that you're craving wherever those gaps are. And so, I mean, that literally seals it is that unless you know who you are, you'll you'll be up for sale to whichever person or whatever thing gives you the most affirmation or the best feeling. Um, it's it's this it's the concept. I mean, we we are also I think like that thought going off of the idea of Benaiah knowing who he was and where he came from. One of the things that I try I'm trying to work with with a younger generation, um, especially when they start dating, and especially when I start to look at the conversations I'm going to be soon having with my daughter, not too soon, but soon, um, <laughs> is that I, I need her to know who she is as a stager. Like, this is where you come from. These are the things that we value. And unless whoever you're talking to reflects that same value, then they're not worth your time. If we could apply that same principle across the board, whether it comes to relationships, opportunity, jobs, um, even you know consumerism, like what brands you align yourself with, what things you give yourself to. It's like, I don't want to be for sale. Like I want things that align with who I am and my conviction. And so when we're talking with a selfie generation, um, a lot of times we filter it through how this has affect me. What does this do to my life? What is this? It's like when I read Galatians 2.20, it says, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's like, so it's very little about what my preferences are. It's like, okay, what is he asking of me? Um, what does obedience look like? Because success is obedience. And so getting the flip the camera around and it not be so much, let me look at myself in this situation, but let me look at my phone really being the camera, being a lens that, okay, God, what are you saying about this situation? Not as what in my opinion, not as what am I feeling, not as what my preference or how does it affect me, but God, what is what are you trying to teach me through this? What are you trying to do through this? You know, I, I'm going to go back to Benai real quick because I just feel like there's something on that. Verse 20, between 20 and 22, I think. Uh, Benaiah chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day and killed it. First off, chasing a lion is ridiculous. I don't know who, I never looked at a lion and said, there's a piece of me that's like, I want to chase that. But he <laughs> he chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day, which means the lion having claws had 
had the advantage, had had a form of grip, whereas Beniah would not have had grip. Put it in our context, the snow was excuses. The snow was everything that we would find a reason to not go after something or not believe in something or not to, to make an excuse as to why we are not the way that we think we should be. Therefore, we shouldn't do this. But the snow, and that was every, he had every reason to give up. You know, oh, as soon as it started snowing, I'm sure he's like, man, every reason to give up on that pursuit, every reason to give up on that, whatever part of him that was saying this was a good idea, the snow definitely would have gotten someone in their right mind to say, okay, now it's definitely not a good, not the right time. But because Beniah knew who he was, he didn't look at the circumstance and say, God, will you please change the circumstance? He looked at the circumstance and saw it as an opportunity. Many of the circumstances we're asking God to change, God put there to change us. Wow. And the only reason why we probably know of Beniah was because he killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. There was something about that radical obedience that set him apart. And so, you know, victims, they they say this happened to me. Victors say this happened for me. So someone who knows who they are and they have it, their identity that's concrete, it's solidified, it's bonded with whom they are. They look through, they look at every circumstance through that lens of God works all things together for good. They look at every situation through the lens of God, you're in control. Oh man, bro, so profound. You know, Micah, you know, I think because you, you're a super prophetic guy and you're contemplative. You, I mean, you, you, you really contemplate, you really think, and I love that about you. Super challenged by it. And I think you you prioritize listening to the still small voice of God. I mean, I've saw the way you and Yvette do life, the way you guys parent, the way you guys build relationships with people, uh, Chris and I included, the way you lead everything. And I, I have this core value that those that hear the still small voice, they will become the whisperer to a generation. Obviously, the term whisperer means a person that would have the ear that could influence a horse whisperer or whatever. You have this kind of whisperer because you've listened to the still small voice. You've become uh, a generational. I, I wouldn't even limit you, although you do have such an incredible influence because everybody wants to be influencers. But I feel like if you want to be a whisperer to culture in a way that really brings transformation, you have to first hear a still small voice. But that involves this, this thing. And maybe you mentioned it. How do we turn the lens around and, and sticking with selfie and a selfie stick, you know, metaphors, uh, you know, you got that stick out there if you're doing it like that and you got the, the, the camera smartphone aimed towards you. How do we turn this thing outward? Because I, I feel like it, as long as, and I've seen this happen in church, regardless of the generation, when we become inward. And, and I feel like the COVID whole crisis has turned us all more inward on, on many levels. One, it was kind of preservation. It was kind of survival. It was like, hey, do I have this thing? Am I coughing this week? Am I, you know, did I test this? Oh my God, this person may give this to me. And so fears always turn you inward. And then you you combine that with a, a extra dose of narcissism that seems to be emerging. And when I say in a generation, I don't mean age. I mean, everyone that breathes air on planet earth, if I'm making sense. It's like we've all become more yeah. narcissistic. So in the midst of that, how do we turn the lens around and how do we really begin to focus on just the majesty and the beauty of who God is? Well, what are some principles, tips, pointers, advice you would give? How do we turn that lens around? Throughout this past summer, one of the priorities I felt like I had to have from God was a returning to the essentials with this generation. Literally eliminating any assumption that they know how to approach the Word of God, prayer, worship, and hearing the voice of God. I just, you know, let me assume none of them know anything. Let me, right? And so I just, I literally, I decided to, whereas normally I would have someone else do student sessions this summer. We have breakout sessions and small time. I was like, God, I, I feel like God was asking me to go over the essential acts of Christian life with these teenagers this year, which are, again, they're all Gen Z. And so I literally, I created four different 
different lessons where we went through them on four different times and we just talked about, okay, how do you grow in the word of God? And it was a hermeneutics in 45 minutes for a teenager. Like, how do you read the word of God? How do you correlate? How do you interpret? How do you memorize? Like, it was just very, very basic. I went through the difference of study Bibles, journaling Bibles, a regular Bible, different translations. Um, and it's just that getting back to the essentials, if they if they if they don't know those basics, like prayer, what is prayer? And if we ask the audience, if we ask people what is prayer, it, there are a lot of things that we all have the same operating definition of what is a stop sign? Like you stop. Well, unless you're at California, that California roll. But then Max. you got that right. So it's that <laughs> that slow roll. All right, no one's here. Keep you going. But just that that it's the the basic premise of like there's a basic operating definition that we all can agree to. Stop sign means stop. We don't, there isn't that like same definition given to prayer when the, someone comes into the faith. It's like telling everyone, this is what prayer is. This is what worship is. This is what obedience is. This is what intercession is. So I just, one of the things that I've seen the most fruit from, it was not glamorous. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't the most appealing. You're not going to see a lot of reposts of the content that I went on. But I'm like, you know, let me go deep with them. Let me be a contemplative let me teach them how to read their Bible. Because yeah, there's probably 85 in the group of a thousand that were born in the back pew of their church. But there's a lot of kids in here, man, they've never, their pastor never took the time. They were too busy preaching their really good, perfectly crafted and pontificated sermons to go over the basics. But let me True. just, for the sake of the one in here that hasn't, you know, I've received more feedback and fruit from teenagers on social media, sending me pictures of the study Bibles they went out and bought after camp was over. Having actual, like, I, I challenge them to memorized scripture. I had teenagers lining up by the hundreds, hundreds at camp waiting to quote scripture to me because I challenged them to read, memorize just one verse that week while they were with us at camp. And I just, I, I, I don't know. I just kind of went back to the basics. Um, I heard someone say this once, so I won't take credit for it, but he said that consistency or no maturity. I heard, I'm going to just restart that because I'm going to edit it. I heard someone say this once, so I won't take credit for it, but he said this, that maturity only comes through the consistent application of elementary things. You can't get to algebra unless you have a firm grasp on addition. So just this idea of how do we flip the, 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 the stick around? How do we flip the lens? Do they have a firm understanding of the most essential acts of Christianity, of following yes. Jesus? That's one th I would just say we need to put more responsibility on a younger generation. Expect more from them. Give them more attention. Give them more ownership. Give them more Give them more to run with. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I'd say I've seen so much fruit from that. Man, you know, Mike, I mean, I think that's so true because my kind of heart cry is where's the discipleship in this generation? Because it really is going to take discipleship because we don't realize it, but the enculturated narrative that's deepening kind of a, a mindset in a generation really is at discipleship levels. I mean, it is so mm -hmm. reinforced. You're talking about repetition, consistency. Uh, I mean, if they cut on their smartphone, they're getting it. If they're looking at a movie, they're getting it. If they're watching the Netflix binge, you know, they're getting it. It's in commercials. It's in marketing. It's in uh, songs. It's in hip hop. It's all around. And so the only place we're going to get it is the most countercultural. Everybody wants to be countercultural, you know, like, yeah, I want to be, I want to start a countercultural revolution. The most countercultural thing in the world is the Bible. It's the person mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ. And I think there's something about just seeing his beauty. I just imagine John who wrote Revelation, who had been around Jesus a good amount of time, right? I mean, you know, he, he had walked with him a disciple. It was a relative of him. And yet when he sees him there, he fall as, he fell as though dead. He describes yeah. him as his eyes are like lightning. His, his face is like the sun shining. And, I, and part of the selfie is that I think our attraction gift is, is so much as turning the lens on 
us that now we have to be decisive and say as followers of Christ, we've got to turn the lens around because those that have turned the lens on themselves are always on the wrong side of history. And those that turn the lens around and see Jesus and see the greater cause and see what God wants to do in a generation is to them that are given the place to be the hinges that turns the door of history. And so, man, I I think, dude, you're you're that dude, man. You have that on you, Micah, man. And bro, it's amazing, man. I so appreciate your time. Hey, Micah, how can we stay in contact with you? How can we follow you? Any kind of projects, anything we could get behind you on? Uh, Keep it 100 Tribe. There's some loyal people. I'm sure some folks are going to follow you and get some of your stuff. So how can they do that? The best ways would be Instagram. uh, Millennial over here, as we talked about. No, um, just being able to have my Instagram would be best. I think just Micah Stager. um, And then my website too, micahstager.com. They're both there. That'd be the most efficient ways. Um, Yeah. Awesome, bro. Thanks so much for your time, man. You are amazing dude, man. I sure love you and Yvette and the kids. Y'all are awesome, bro. Thank you so much. And we love y'all. You'll be family forever. We're so grateful for who you are, what you carry, the conversations that we have at dinner tables, and then just the voice that you are to this this nation and the nations around the world. Oh my God. He is so deep. When he was talking about the contrast between Gen Z and millennials, oh my oh God, my. that was phenomenal. That's so good. Yes. Hey, Tribe, right now, we want you to get ready for one of our favorite segments in our podcast is the Keep It 100 Takeaways. So this episode, we want to give you two takeaways, which are two narcissistic lenses that must be turned around. The first narcissistic lens that needs to be turned around is get ready, y'all. We are entitled to acceptance and endorsement. Let's turn that around because as many of us believe that they're entitled to do whatever makes them happy, they also believe they're entitled to the acceptance and even the endorsement of others in whatever choices or lifestyle they have chosen. But scripture teaches that one who does wrong is not entitled to the acceptance of the righteous. Remember, Paul wrote, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. We find this in Ephesians 5.11. And then on the other hand, those who are righteous should not expect the world that will accept them, right? We have to understand that Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it's hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. You find this in John 15, 18 and 19. So again, remember, we're flipping the lens on this. We are not entitled to acceptance, regardless of whether one is righteous or wicked. And there will be others, sometimes many others who will not accept one's beliefs, practices, or lifestyle. We need to strive to gain the favor of God by serving him rather than seeking the acceptance of men. And we find this in Galatians 1.10. So good. The second narcissistic lens that needs to be turned around is we're entitled to happiness. We got to turn that lens around. For many people, whatever makes them happy is what they believe they should be allowed to do. This can involve any number of things, including uh, the consumption of narcotics, heavy drinking, engaging in various types of, of sexual immorality. Yet that is totally false and nothing can be further from the truth. Our lives should never be focused on what makes us happy. That will get you in a lot of trouble, gang. We have been called to deny ourselves and follow Christ, Luke 9.23, which is a foundational scripture to these two podcasts we've been doing. Our first priority must be to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and to please him in all respects. That's Colossians 1.10. Again, I think you need to underline Colossians 1.10. Our second priority must be to please others, even to the point of putting their interests ahead of our own. Paul wrote in uh, Romans 15.1, now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those who are weak and not just to please ourselves, but we should please our neighbors for their good and to their edification. You know, as we conclude this episode today, we really have to understand we were never meant to trust in or be defined by satisfying 
satisfied in and captivated by ourselves. Come on. We were made to revere someone infinitely more interesting and awesome than ourselves. We become most truly and freely ourselves in a state of self-forgetful reverence and giving all our reverence to Jesus. Let's go. I love that. Hey, gang, turn your camera around. I just want you to make it a point in this next week of your life and to implement this as a lifestyle. Turn your camera around. We got to turn the selfie lens away from our faces, away from our needs and wants and on to others and on ultimately to Jesus Christ. And we got to pray that we will be humble enough to care for our neighbors above ourselves. And I believe that really speaks to this emerging generation. We need to surrender our egos of self-importance, stop worshiping and serving our favorite idol. You know what that is, right? Ourselves. We got to step off the pedestal and put God back up on the throne where he belongs. And we're here to serve him. All the energy we spend on trying to over love ourselves in a carnal way now has to be channeled into passionately loving and pursuing him and serving and loving others. Focuses on God means what? We fall into the background. We're no longer center stage and Jesus asks us to love others with the same fervor that we love ourselves. Thanks so much for tuning into the Keep It 100 podcast. Make sure to rate, review, and refer us to your friends and be sure to click that subscribe button so that you're alerted as soon as new episodes drop. Help us get the word out. Share this link on your social media platforms and check us out at seanandkristasmith.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Sean and Krista Smith Ministries. We would love to hear from you on how this podcast has impacted you. So be sure to show us some love. Hey, Keep It 100 Tribe, you do not want to miss our next episode as we're going to unleash another power pack episode. And remember, relief may change your circumstance, but a revelation will change you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Keep It 100 podcast with Sean and Krista Smith. Keep up with us on Facebook and Instagram and seanandkristasmith.com where you can discover more resources. If this podcast has impacted you, please subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcast. Keep it